will be today. We've been going book by book. In fact, we split uh, book, or excuse me, chapter by chapter in the book of Daniel. Uh, chapter 1, chapter 2. Last week we talked about chapter 3, and we did that actually for two weeks. Um, just discussing Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, what they did um, to defeat the culture and defeat King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and really, as we look at the story today, King Nebuchadnezzar plays a much bigger part. He has been the antagonist from the beginning of um, the book of Daniel. Um, he's the one who's trying to impose his will and his control on Daniel and his God-following friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the story we come across today really deals with a theme that has been taking place really throughout the entire Bible. So the whole history of mankind has dealt with this from generation to revelation. Uh, excuse me, from Genesis, the book of Genesis, to the book of Revelation, we're constantly talking about our identity in relation to God's identity. Our relationship in relation to God and who he is through us. And it can be summarized in just two words. You ready for this? Not God. Right? Right? In fact, say that with me. Not God. Uh, Some of you don't got that yet the end of this message. I hope you do, but practice with me. At least let your lips kind of introduce you to it, the thought, okay? Not God. Say it with me. Not God. Okay. That is what we have to know about ourselves, that you are not God. I am not God. Now, I know that might come as a surprise to some of you, but I am not God. But sometimes the things that we do and think in our daily activities and our daily living say we think we are God. We act that way. In fact, um, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous is a man by the name of Ernest Kurtz. And he stated this is a huge hurdle uh, to overcoming being stored to sanity uh, and overcoming alcoholism. In fact, uh, realizing, here's what he says, realizing that you can't come overcome alcohol on your own, realizing you need, and there's the words, a higher power, realizing you are not God. In fact, I was there with, with Sandy and Sal and others in our recovery ministry this last Thursday, um, and, and I heard the guys say that. They read over the 12 steps uh, that they are not, they are not God. We need a higher power. In fact, Ernest Kurtz wrote a book called not God. He wrote about the history of AA. And here's the quote that he gives. He says this. He says, every alcoholic's problem has first been claiming God-like powers, especially that of control, thinking we can do it on our own. In fact, I love what Anne Lamott said about this in our relationship with God and these God-type issues. She said this, She said, the biggest difference between you and God is God doesn't think he's you. (laughs) And, And we see this beginning all the way back in Genesis, all the way up to today, this temptation. In fact, the serpent tempted Adam and Eve by saying, remember this? Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, he said, come on, you can eat of the fruit. You will, if you do it, you, you will have your eyes opened and you will, what's the word there? You will be like God. Very first temptation. I can be like God. 
And so let me give you, it's on your outline, the most important discovery in your life. Okay? And as we prepare for this, parents, let me, let me, let me instill this in you. You have got to get this into your children. Grandparents, if your day and age is gone with influence over your children, try it with your grandchildren. This is so, so, so important. Teach them this. For all of us, this is the beginning of spiritual sanity, of psychological sanity, of physical sanity, of relational sanity. This is it. Here it is. The very first most important discovery in my life. Ready? That I am not God. I am not God. In fact, say that with me. I am not God. Say it one more time. I am not God. All right, just to make sure, I know we did a greeting time already, but would you introduce yourself to the people on your left and right? In fact, give them your name, and as you do, say, hi, my name is Brad, or whatever your name is, and I'm not God, okay? Would you, would you just introduce yourself that way? I am not God. All right. I hope that did not come out as a surprise for some of you. Did we have any people who think they are God around here? Okay. Just making sure of that. We're, we're all on the same page there. I am not God. Now, how does this fit in with Daniel chapter 4? It fits in because we see a person who Daniel was going up against who thinks he is God. King Nebuchadnezzar is the personification of this struggle, and his story, as we're going to break it down here in Daniel chapter 4, really can be broken up into three parts. Here is act number one, living the life. Nebuchadnezzar starts out by living the life. How do I know that? Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. These are Nebuchadnezzar's words. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I mean, can you just see the pride swelling in his chest? I'm here, I'm content and prosperous. And just so you don't think that this is just like some made-up figure in history, um, this is a real-life person. This is not just a story that's being told. This is an actual historical figure in place. Let me me tell you some of the history that we know about Nebuchadnezzar so that you can maybe understand why he begins to think of himself in this way. All right? Archaeologists have discovered 126 of these clay tablets that you see on the screen that are the chronicles of the inscriptions that he put on the buildings that he built. And so people would go by and see what he wrote on these buildings, and they actually recorded it on these tablets. And archaeologists have discovered 126 of these tablets showing and telling about all the works and all the buildings and all the things that he had done. I mean, the buildings that he created and, and, and allowed to be built in his kingdom were incredible. In fact, most of us have heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We don't probably all know what those are, but let me just show you some pictures of of, of those. The first one I'll bring up is the pyramids of Giza. We, We have obviously, most of us have seen the pyramids. Then there's the temple of Artemis. There's the statue of Zeus at Olympus, Olympia. 
There's the mausoleum at the Halicarnassus in Turkey. There's the Colossus of Rhodes. And then the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Now, those are six. The seventh of the wonders of the ancient world was what Nebuchadnezzar built. And that was the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And so you can just imagine him here. He is overlooking his vast array of a kingdom such as this. He, he is that powerful. The things that he creates are that beautiful. He was that legendary. He was that much of an architect and an artist. And, and archaeologists have all, uh, also discovered these gates that are outside, that were outside of the um, Babylon uh, uh, city that he ruled over. Um, they were 20 miles in circumference around the city of Babylon, uh, just beautiful, ornate uh, design and tall and stalwart. Uh, And so that's what probably he is overlooking as these words are recorded about him. In fact, the Greek historian Herodias said this. He said, in addition to its size, Babylon surpasses in splendor any city in the known world. And Nebuchadnezzar was the one who built it. Now you say, did he actually put the bricks on top and, and do the mortar and such? No, but he commissioned the slaves to do what they did. Fortunately, he probably oppressed them as he did it. But in his mind, he is God. That's his worldview. In fact, if he was around today, he would probably even have a one-up on this guy. Remember him? Who is he? The most interesting man in the world, right? Right? But even he got replaced, right? I think they have a new person for their little ad campaign that they got going on. That, that's probably who uh, 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 King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he is. He is the most stupendous, the most interesting, the most wonderful man in the world. Nebuchadnezzar has it going on. Life is good. He's contented. He's prosperous. In fact, all is perfect except for one area of his life. Do you know what it is? His dream life. He can't control the dreams that come into his head at nighttime. And we see this, remember we went over this a few weeks ago in in, um, Daniel chapter 2. And here it comes again. And King Nebuchadnezzar, he's contented, he's prosperous, all is going well, but these dreams are freaking him out. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, he believed that the gods, little g, plural, were trying to speak to him in his dream life. So here's what he does. It says in verse 5 that he had a dream. That made him afraid, which that has to say a lot. If he, the most powerful man in the world at the time, was afraid, and so he tries to have it interpreted, and Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say in verse 9, the last part of it, he says, here is my dream, Daniel Interpret it for me. Now, remember, Daniel was called in chapter 2. He's again called here in chapter um, 4, and um, King Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel, what this dream is about. He said, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, the God of heaven. Am I getting this? Uh, No, I have just jumped chapters. Okay. 
Now you realize I'm not God, right? Okay. Uh, there it is, verse 10. It says, these are the visions I saw while lying on my bed, said Nebuchadnezzar. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. Verse 11. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, the fruit abundant. And on it were, uh, was food for everyone. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. Verse 13. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off the leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from the branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. So there's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He can't figure out what it's saying. He just knows it's probably not a good thing. He is fearful of what's going on. None of the wise men can interpret it, but up steps Daniel. And Daniel says, "Uh, this might not be very popular to you, but here goes. Verse 22 says, you, O king, you are that tree. He says, you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. And your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. He goes on to say, verse 25 and 26, he says, But unfortunately, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone that he wishes. Now, it took guts for Daniel to step up and say this to King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he probably wished he didn't have to. He, he, he was probably a little fearful to do this. But Daniel doesn't just stop there. His role as a prophet says, not only, King, you're messing up, But you know what? Let me give you some hope in the midst of this. Because in verse 27, he goes on to then say, verse 27, Susan, 27, thank you. He says, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. See, Daniel is explaining our relationship to God here. This wasn't just about worshiping God and casting your eyes heavenward and having it be all good then. He was saying, your life needs to get right. You're oppressing the poor. You're you're putting them into slavery. You're doing other things to them. You need to get that that part of your life as well for all of us here today. We have to know this. We sin. 
we do wrong. And there is a holy God in heaven who cannot accept that. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says we're not God. In fact, if you have not got that from what we've said and we've done, let me give you one more exercise just to prove it, okay? Let me give you a little kinesthetic exercise here. Take out your little pointer finger, all right? Get that here. Point it up to heaven. Say, God. Not. All of you didn't get that. All right, let's try it. Let's try it so everybody's on. Ready? Point your finger out. Here we go. God. Not. Basically, Daniel is saying, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to understand you're not God. You need to quit living like you are. You need to realize it's, it's sin in your life. You need help with that. We all do. As I get to teach and preach this passage here today and be a prophet like Daniel did 26, 2,500 years ago, we step in here, or actually about 4,500 years ago, we step in here now and we say, you know what, we sin as well. And we try and be like God. And we try and take his place. Or we try and overlook what he tells us to do. Last week, if you were here in the services, I told a a little joke about a mom who went into the backyard and saw her children gathered around a group of skunks. Uh, Actually, it was not a joke. It's a a true story of a mom in Maryland comes home and sees five of her kids around these skunks, a baby, uh, five baby skunks and a mother skunk. And so the mom comes up. The kids probably think it's like a cat. You know, it's so cute and cuddly. And the mom comes up. Remember what I said last week? Uh, she says, run. And they all pick up, you know, two skunks and they all run, right? Okay. That was all cute and all, it was all funny. But I got to think about that more this week. And I thought, you know what? That is exactly what we do. God says when their sin is there, he says, run, we pick up our sin and we run. We, we, we grab our greed and we say, okay, I'll run with it. And God's saying, no, run away from it. And we say, no, I like it too much. I want to run with it. We pick up our greed. We pick up our idolatry. We pick up our pride. We pick up our selfishness. We pick up our, our gluttony. We pick up our, our, our sexual sins. We pick up our hypocrisy, and we run with them. When God's saying, no, drop them. Let me deal with that for you. Let me take care of it. Run without them. Or maybe we have a friend in our life who, said, who says, run from sin. And we think, no, thanks. I got it. I can take care of it before we hit rock bottom, which is what Nebuchadnezzar does. And so while act one, he was living the life, here comes act two, hitting bottom. Verse 29, here's what it says. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, but my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Do you see a lot of him in this, right? I built for my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. And God waits. Remember how, what does it say here? He waited how long? 12 months. 
He waits a year. He waits 365 days after Daniel talked with him to see if he would change on his own. And Daniel's intervention doesn't do it, and the king's reasoning in his own mind doesn't do it as well. And let me just say this. There are some of you in here today who are dealing with some sin that you know is sin in your life. And yet you're picking it up and you're running with it. You're playing with it. And I cringe to think that this could be day 364 for you. That God's been waiting. God's grace has been upon you. You know it's been revealed either through Scripture you've read, through a friend who's talked with you, through the Holy Spirit that's inside um, of you, through a, be a message that your pastor has given to you, whatever it may be. And you know you need to run from this. You know you need to change this. And yet you're not. And God waits 365 days for, Daniel, or for King Nebuchadnezzar, and then he allows the consequences to happen. And today, if it could be day 364, God is still saying, change, drop it. Drop it. It's not just for you. It's for your kids. It's for your grandkids. It's for the people around you. It's not just because I want to see you fall and be broken. No, it's because I want to see you whole and healthy and strong. And Nebuchadnezzar is here, and he is trying to reason this one out. He's not listening to Daniel and his intervention. And he's saying, no, I can take care of this. I can do this. You know, it got me thinking, as you talk about a heavenly father to his children, um, you know, we can't reason with God. Have you ever tried to reason with a young child? Have you tried to do that? I, I'm a very kind of logical person in that way, and I remember trying to reason with my kids when they were real young. Let me just say it this way. I was the world's greatest parent until I had kids, right? I could be, I could be so judgmental at the grocery store line, you know, that kid who's just piping off and just screaming and the parent who's embarrassed up there, right? And, and you're just like, oh, I know how to be a better parent than that until I got kids and was so humbled by that. No perfect parents. Sin is there. Sin happened. Sin, sin enters in and, and, and it humbles us in a lot of ways. In fact, I like what humorous Dave Barry said about it. The key to parenthood, here's what he said. The key to parenthood, lower your standards. <laughs> uh, that, that, that'll help, right? Kind of like when, when a, a pacifier hits the ground. Do you, remember, do you remember what you used to do when maybe you had your first kid? When you had your first kid, you would like sterilize that thing in hot water. You'd run it under the water, the sink, right? Second kid, what did you do? Maybe just in your own mouth, right? Or kind of like that, just pop it in. What did you do with your third kid? Boop, just pop it right back in the mouth, right? You didn't care. They didn't care. You lowered your standards, didn't you? Right? right. How, how many of you are second, third, fourth, or on down kids? How many of you are not first, children, first child? Yeah, I'm there right there with you. How many of you are the oldest child? Yeah, we hate you. Yeah, yeah, boo, boo, right? Yeah. Hey, you guys got all the good stuff around you, right? You were always blessed. Parents lowered their standards for the rest of us, right? But God doesn't lower his standards. And he never will. We don't measure up to them. And that's why he brings Jesus into the equation. Jesus was not around yet here with Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel was saying, Nebuchadnezzar, come on. Holiness is holiness. You got to get there. 
And as soon, watch this now, as soon as King Nebuchadnezzar uttered these words we see up here on the screen, is this not the great Babylon that I have built, my majesty and power, the glory of my majesty? Look what it goes on to say in verse 33. It goes on to say, immediately, this is day 365, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a what? Of a bird. Which really, this is kind of poetic language for saying he went insane and he became homeless and broken. God waits a year. But King Nebuchadnezzar didn't repent. He didn't renounce his sins. He wasn't kind to the oppressed. And he certainly did not acknowledge the Most High was sovereign over all. And now the one who all around Babylon they had on the image of their currency, their coin, the very one the image of the king is on, now he is crawling around poor and homeless. Now he is one of them. Turns out, not God. Not God. You know, it's eerie, and it's kind of, I don't want to get too much into a side of this, but Saddam Hussein, who was ruler over Iraq, where Babylon is located, for years, for years, had a godlike stance. Had a God, there, there are eerie similarities between King Nebuchadnezzar and Saddam Hussein. And remember back in December 2003 when he was captured? Do you remember where he was? He was like hiding out in the back of a farmhouse in a hole like a rat. Not God. Not God. You know, that kind of hubris kind of leaks into all of our lives. I remember the story about Don Shula. Um, it's football season. I always love sharing football analogies at this time. The Hall of Fame inductions were uh, a couple of weeks ago. Don Shula's in the Hall of Fame. Um, really, overall, he's a pretty you know, humble guy. Two-time two Super Bowl winning champion as a coach. Um, he was on vacation one time with his wife, and they were up in this little New England town up in the northeast of the uh, United States. Um, they went to the movies one night, and there were only a handful of people in this, just this little tiny theater in this old downtown New England. England town. And uh, when Don and his wife walked into uh, the theater, people stood up and they actually started to applaud. Uh, and, and they were saying, yay, yay. And, and, you know, Don Shula was secretly kind of pleased with this. And he sits down with his wife and he just wanted to make sure that it registered with his wife what had gone on here. And he looks at her and he says, you know, gosh, honey, uh, I guess there's no place in all of America where I'm not known. And at that moment, someone runs up to them and, and shakes both their hands and says, oh, we are so glad to see you folks here because the manager said that he wasn't going to start the movie until 10 people were here, and you're 9, and you're 10. Yay! <laughs> Not God, right? Not God. Not God. And King Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his hubris and glory, hits rock bottom. Like a bird or like a, like a creature in the fields. Feathers coming off, claws in his hand, until he turns. And he says, all right, 
I'm not God. And this is act number three, where he is restored to sanity. Restored to sanity. And he acknowledges it in verse 34, which begins like this. It says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. And then what happened? My sanity was what? My sanity was restored. And, and that phrase, at that time, remember, this is seven years later. He has to go through this for seven years. Some of you may be in here today, and you are on day one, or you might be on day uh, uh, 365, or you may be on day six years plus 365. I don't know where you're at and all that, but my goodness, speed up the process. Repent. Say, God, it's done. I'm not God. You are. Say, God, I ask for forgiveness. I cannot do it myself. I need you. And it says here, again, the phrase, I raised my eyes towards heaven. Not just looked up. This was spiritual posture that he had, and it changes. His allegiance says, God, you're God, I am not. And it says, my, my sanity was restored. He now see things very differently. He wasn't illusioned anymore. In fact, the 12-step, I've heard people ta- say this, who've gone through the 12 steps, they say, my, re- my, my sanity it, it, it's been restored to me. They have a proper perspective that the world does not revolve around them. That they have a, now a higher power in their life. Verse 34 goes on to say this. It says, then I praise the Most High. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He's got it right now. I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And he goes on to say, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. See, proper perspective. God, you are God. We are nothing in comparison to you. He does, you do, God, as you please, with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Again, just breaking down a couple of these phrases. All people regarded as nothing. God, I'm putting you back in your proper place. And at the end of verse 35, I'm letting you be God. God, you are God, I'm not. I'm resigning as the GM, the general manager of the universe. It's not my role. I've been trying to take that on. The position is already filled. God, you have it. And can I just say, the people that I have counseled with and talked through some issues that are going on in their life who finally come to this realization are the ones who sit in my office and it just feels like a weight is lifted off their shoulders. When they finally come to realize there are things in my life that I can't take care of, that I can't deal with, that I can't do it, but God has to. I was with a gentleman this last week. And he was sharing about how in his life, when he was in his middle ages, probably teenagers through his year 20s, uh, into his early 30s, he was just running wild in life. He's a guy now who's been a deacon at our church, very well respected, does a lot of work for the church, and, and just a generous type of person. I never knew this about his life, but he said um, his mom, all she could do was pray me through it. He said, my mom could have gone crazy if she was trying to take care of this. She planted the seeds from years ago. I knew it was in there. I just had to come to the end of myself. And so moms, let me just encourage you. If you have a wayward son, a wayward uh, daughter, Don't beat yourself up over that. 
Pray for them. Don't forget who's God in the midst of that and pray that they will understand that. Parents, same type of thing. Raise your children in the ways of the Lord when they are young. Pray for them. Even if they are wayward or going the wrong way, turn it over to God. Husbands and wives, let me talk to you just a second. Wives, you can't change your husband. And nagging never works, all right? You can't do it. It's not you. Communicate your concerns to your husband. Know when to speak up, but also know when to, speak, to step back and pray for them because ultimately it's got to get into their heart and God's got to be the one to do that. And husbands, be open, receptive to that. Husbands, understand God has given you the authority in the family. Yes, you are the leader in that family, but realize it is under his authority. You're not God. You do it as a team. You work together. Employers, employees, that relationship is so important as well. Maybe you work for a boss who has not been very kind-hearted and such. Your responsibility is to still say, you know what? He's been given authority. She's been given authority over me. And I want to operate in wisdom and intact is what Daniel does. We studied about that a few weeks ago. I still want to be kind-hearted. I want to express my concerns, but do it with love. Wisdom intact. And no matter what age you are at when you try and learn this lesson, for Nebuchadnezzar, it took seven years. Remember what happens here in verse 37. 37 says this. It says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to, what's the word there? Begin of the message, I asked the question, or I, or I, I offered an observation of the most uh, important discovery in life, and that was, I'm not God. Let me now ask you what the most important question in life is. It's on your outline on the back side. What is the most important question in life? Let me give it to you. It's this. How do I get right with God? How do I get right with God? If I realize I'm not God, if I realize that pride has gotten in the way, if I realize now that I have sinned, if I realize now I need to repent, how do I go about that? Well, look what Scripture says. The anti-Nebuchadnezzar is what Jesus did for us. In fact, out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, in fact, I'm going to ask you to read this with me. Read it up off the screen if you would. Read it. Go. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And it goes on in verse 8 and says this. Verse 8 is rolling in right now. There's verse 8. Read it. And being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the humility that Jesus displayed for us, going to the cross for us. In fact, you know, it also says it so well in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, um, about how God makes us right with him. Look at what he says here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can 
boast. You see the pride in there? Even the salvation that we have, God says, I don't want it to be based upon you because then you think you might have earned it. You think you might deserve it. You don't. In fact, let me just give a little plug for our series coming up. Pastor Derek talked about the greater than grace. God's grace is so much greater than anything you have done, anything that will be done. But we want to experience. We need to experience it. And that grace isn't anything that you do. It's given to us, not by our works, but by the work of Jesus on the cross for us. We cannot save ourselves. Not God. Not God. In fact, on your outline, if you don't mind on the back page, just read one more thing with me. The prayer that is there. It's in the box. I'm going to ask you to read it. We'll read it together, okay? This is called the Not God Prayer. You got it? Okay, go. God, I want to confess, I'm not God. I'm not infinite. I'm not holy. I'm a sinner. So I lift my eyes to the King of all. I receive your love and your forgiveness as a gift of grace because of what Jesus did. I want to make Jesus my Lord, and as best I can, follow him for the rest of this life, and then forever in the world to come. You know, if that truly is your desire, I know hundreds of you across this auditorium have prayed that prayer, but maybe there are some in here today who have not. If that truly is your desire, then in just a bit, we're going to confirm that and pray that. God, I'm a sinner. I I need to repent. I need to say I'm sorry. I need to repent of taking things over. You're you're God. I'm not. It's called a sinner's prayer. And it's a prayer that, that doesn't have to be said with exact words, but it needs to be said with a posture of humility and brokenness and acknowledging God is God and we're not. And after we say that prayer together, we're then going to celebrate communion here. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, however we refer to it as, was a time when Jesus got together with his disciples and uh, celebrated with them, teaching them, sharing with them what he was going to do for them in going to the cross. They did not understand all of it fully, but they put the pieces together enough to know this was his blood that was going to be shed. This was his body that was going to be broken for them that allowed them to be in relationship with God. It allowed forgiveness to take place. And so today, as we come to the table to do just that, the only way that we're allowed to come is with humility, brokenness, and a contrite spirit that says, God, forgive me. And yes, I want to receive and accept your gift for me, that grace that is in Jesus. You don't have to be a member here at First Baptist to partake of these elements. We just ask you to be a member of the family of God. Be one of his followers. And if you're not yet, let's do that right now. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity we have to celebrate what you did for us so long ago on the cross. Even the lessons that you teach us from the book of Daniel. Um, Lord, reflect our spirits that need to be broken and contrite before we come into a right relationship with you. And so we thank you for Daniel's words to Nebuchadnezzar, for his heart change that came about, and 
finally, Lord, realizing that he was not God, you were. God, he raised his eyes to you. He acknowledged you as Lord. He acknowledged you as the one over all. And so, God, we here now come in 2018 to a time when we need to do the same. We need to do the same by saying, God, you are God and I am not. And God, that's just the beginning of the process. It then comes to a place of saying, God, forgive me when I've played God. Forgive me when I've sinned against you. Forgive me for the wrong that I've done. And so, Lord, all across this auditorium, all across this sanctuary, um, Lord, you know our hearts. You know the attitude of our hearts. So, Lord, individually, we come to you now. And we ask for you to inspect our lives. If there be things in our lives that we need to give up, there be things that, God, you need to reveal, shine a light upon, Lord, may you do that. And may we have a spirit that says, Lord, forgive me and help me make that right. So, Lord, even now, hear us. Lean in as we pray only the prayer we can pray in our hearts to you. God, repentance is that first step. And when our heart is right with you, Lord, then we're open to receiving the gift that you've given to us, Jesus. And so today, folks, if you have never prayed that prayer to say, God, I want you to become real in my life. I invite you to be God in my life. I'm done being the general manager of the GM of the universe. Even over my life, I've messed that up. God, I need you in my life. And today, if you pray that even for the first time, it's saying, Lord Jesus, today I invite you into my life. I give you the control. I ask for forgiveness of my sins. I accept that you went to the cross to die for me. And I believe that in great faith. And I invite you into my life for good, then just in your own words, in your own heart, acknowledge that and receive Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you because you've seen our hearts and you know those who have said yes and you know those who have said yes years ago, but you also know those who have said yes today, right now, at this very service. And so, folks, if today is the first day you said yes, we invite you to the table. If you've received Christ in your life years ago or months ago, it does not matter. If you're part of the family, you said yes, then these elements are for you as well. Lord Jesus, we come before you now. Say thank you for these elements that we get to partake of. We say thank you for the juice that is there, for the wafer that is there, representing your blood and your body. Lord, even as we receive that now, we'll contemplate, we'll hold them in our hands, and together we'll join in as a family, saying, Lord, thank you. We do this to remember what you've done for us. We love you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we now pray. Amen.